right, so my name's TJ Hooser, or as my old uh, seminary professor would prefer, Travis. Never use initials when you're preaching in front of a crowd, he said. I noticed that and was like, ooh, uh-oh, I hope he's not watching this. Um, so, uh, so my name's Travis Hooser. Jess and I moved here a year ago uh, on orders from the Army. I'm a human resources manager with the Oklahoma City Recruiting Battalion. Uh, I'm also a full-time seminary student with Covenant Baptist Theological, as Pastor Allen mentioned. Uh, Anytime I get up to speak in front of a crowd, and it has been a while since I've done this, so please bear with me, I like to give my testimony. I think it's important that if somebody's going to open the Word of God and speak from a position of authority on the Word of God, you need to know who's talking to you. Uh, many in this congregation know my wife and I. My kids uh, are usually running amok on, uh, on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. Um, so you think of some of the great testimonies you've heard. The people who were pulled out of absolute shambles, drug addiction, all these terrible things and, and brought to, to salvation in Christ. I don't have that exciting testimony. That's, that's not the one you're going to hear from me. I grew up in a very vanilla, lower-middle-class American family. Uh, My mom was a single parent who later married my stepdad, who later died of cancer. Um, So my mom had a real rough time raising me, and so a lot of my parenting uh, fell on my grandma. And fortunately for me, like Timothy, I had a very godly grandma who made sure I was in church every Sunday, made sure, I, uh, made sure I knew who Jesus was. And so a lot of my spiritual development, uh, I credit to my grandma. Now, I have to be very specific in that because there's a lot she should never have to take responsibility for. Um, but that, that, is, that is my spiritual pedigree. I grew up in a typical Baptist church in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, Jeff this morning when he spoke, talked about walking an aisle and praying a prayer. When I was eight years old, I did exactly that. I felt a conviction of the Holy Spirit. And in responding to that conviction, I did the only thing I knew to do, and that was to walk the aisle, pray the prayer. But after that, I was somewhat confused because I'd done all this stuff. I had, and, I, and I heard the same thing Jeff talked about. Once saved, always saved. So as far as I understood it, I was good. Um, to, to, as Jeff said, go on sinning all the more. I hadn't quite got to that chapter of Romans in my spiritual development yet. Um, but in high school, I felt a draw to preach the Word of God uh, at the age of 16. Uh, I graduated high school. I went to a Baptist Bible college in southwest Missouri, and I began studying to be a pastor. Well, at this uh, school, I ran headlong into self-righteous, man-centered religion. And like any good and strong student of the Bible, I put my tail between my legs and ran. Um, I moved back home. I helped take care of my grandma in her last few months of life. And after that, I took a job and began uh, just making a life in Wichita, Kansas, which was the last thing I wanted to do. Uh, when I joined the Army, I said I will go anywhere but the, but the Wichita area. Twelve years later, the Army says you're going to Oklahoma City. Have fun being three hours from where you tried to get away from. Um, but I learned a lot in that time, and so I returned to my Baptist college 
but I still hadn't dealt with everything from the first time. And so when I returned, I returned as a history student. Still convicted about a call to ministry, but just trying to deal with things as they were. You know, I had, I had good reasons. I had excuses. I had a lot of them. And they were really good. I, I liked all of them. But I returned. I met my wife, Jessica. We dated. Um, we got married, and I jumped ship for Tarshish as soon as, I mean the army, as soon as I could. Avoiding the call that was on my life. We spent the next 10 years in very easy-to-be-in churches. Churches that didn't necessarily challenge or convict us, but I was able to check the block. I went to Sunday school for the interaction to discuss the Bible because I had a deep concern for the theology of God. But I went to church because Jess wanted to go to church. Like, that was, that was the extent of me sitting through the service that I'm now preaching today. Um, because there was the, the word was given, but it was hollow. And I don't know how to explain it beyond that. When you find yourself in a church like this one, where the word is preached with conviction and with power, hold on to that. You may have minor disagreements. You may have things you don't like. The carpet color may offend you. But hold on to that conviction and stay with the church. Um, three years ago, we moved to North Carolina. Again, the Army, you know, they, they get to decide where you do everything. And we hit a crossroads. We joined a church because it was the big Southern Baptist church in town. Um, we joined a church that was, uh, that was, again, your typical Southern Baptist megachurch. Uh, the church made a bad turn. And in that moment, I had a choice. Um, we could keep going. We knew the people. We, you know, we didn't agree with everything to begin with, so what did it matter? Or I could actually start leading my family the way I was supposed to. And I was deeply convicted about the situation. And it was in that moment that my faith and my, my sanctification began to really develop. So I, in earnest, began looking at churches. And instead of, the way we had found the original church, looking at the programs, looking at what they do with the kids, looking at all this other stuff, I started looking at their faith statements. And there wasn't a lot out there. Uh, I found one good church with a solid faith statement, watched several sermons by the pastor, and decided this was the church we needed to go to because he taught the Word straight from the word, and he did so in a manner I had never, I did not know what expository preaching was until we came to this church. Ironically, it was an independent fundamentalist Baptist church. With If you told 18-year-old me I'd end up in one of those, I would have laughed at you. But that was the church we ended up in. And in that church, Jess and I grew because we were constantly fed the word. We were constantly challenged on the word. And it was also in this time that those old convictions started coming back. I was also doing a lot of reading. I was, I was hearing things I'd never heard before. Um, up to this point, I would be described as a Calvinistic Baptist. You know, dabbling in the same gateway drugs that many others dabble in. Piper and MacArthur. But at this church, I began to hear of uh, Vody Bauckham and Sprawl. The more hardcore drugs of the Reformed theology. Um, and I couldn't get enough. I was hooked. Uh, I was hearing things I'd never heard before. Confessional, covenant theology, this thing called a Westminster, which my pastor from that church to this day still mispronounces. Um, 
and the 1689 Confession. And over the course of those two years, that IBF church, which, by the way, was a, they were really bad at being an IBF church, or an IFB church. Uh, the pastor preached out of the ESV. The women wore jeans. Um, and the sovereignty of God was freely proclaimed from the pulpit on a regular basis. So while a wonderful church, they were bad at being independent fundamentalists. But I was very thankful for that church because it brought me to the place I am today. Um, but I hadn't gotten there yet. I said, okay, I'll go back to seminary, I'll do this, but I need to do this army thing first. And uh, so I'll go back to seminary once there's, a, once there's a Reformed Baptist seminary that's actually accredited. See, I knew my battle space. I knew that the closest seminary to being accredited was Covenant Baptist Theological in Owensboro. And I knew from their, their own words that they were seven or eight years out of accreditation. So I had a lot of time to get comfortable with this idea. Well, earlier this year, as with so many things, that wonderful plan got thrown in the trash can. Um, see, Covenant Baptist decided to move up their accreditation. So they announced that in October, they would be sitting for that accreditation. And unlike making the mistakes of the past, I decided, okay, I guess it's time to enroll and get, get started on this. And I did. And true to form, Covenant Baptist gained their accreditation in October. And this next, uh, in fact, Wednesday, I'll start my sixth class with the seminary. I came to that seminary because of their academics. But one of the greatest things about the seminary is their pastoral uh, mentorship program. That program is what has me before you today with the blessing of the elders. It allows me to learn ministry from those who are actively doing ministry. Because I tell you, if someone with 13 years in the army jumps right into ministry, that could very well be a train wreck, um, as you may see today. Um, but I want you to know this is, this is the place from which we've come. I don't know what the future holds. I may be in the army another eight years. I may be in the army another eight months. Um, but I am, I am satisfied in where God has brought us, and I look forward to continuing the journey uh, as we continue. On a side note, so that you know the seminary doesn't get on to me too bad, with the outline for today's sermon, there's also a critique sheet for the sermon. So if you could provide some feedback, some notes, tell me what I can improve on. Uh, the backspace is completely blank, so you can write as much as you need to. Um, but also anything you may have appreciated about the message. And, uh, and, that. and those are on the back table. Today's message is going to come out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 17. And as I read from God's word, please give it the special attention and reverence that the inerrant word of God deserves. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, that all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has promised you, 
in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he has swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of good things which you did not fill and hewn cisterns which you did not dig vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant and you eat and are satisfied then watch yourselves that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name You shall not follow other gods or the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you. And he will wipe you off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Mesa. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes as which he has commanded you. So what's most important to you? Is it your house? Is it your job? Is it your family? Is it your political affiliation? Is it fishing or hunting maybe? What is the most important thing to you? Are you the most important thing to you? One way to find this out, ask your kids. If someone randomly surveyed your kids, and nobody do this with mine because I haven't you know, prepped them yet, but if they asked you, what's your dad's most important thing, or what's your mom's most, what's the most important thing to them? How would your kids respond? What would your friends say or your coworkers? The reason I ask this is because The people of Israel are about to be told the most important thing to them. And by extension, we as the church are about to receive the same message. So background to the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Old Testament. The name is derived from a Latin translation of the Greek, meaning the the second law or the second telling of the law. The author is primarily Moses. Uh, written around 1405 B.C. Uh, I say mostly because the last chapter is probably written by Joshua shortly thereafter. Um, It might be unusual for Moses to write his own death and eulogy. Um, But that makes it no less inspired. People challenge the inerrancy of Scripture on a multitude of levels. But Joshua, an inspired writer of Scripture, closing the chapter of a book of inspired Scripture with inspired Scripture is no less authoritative. It's the fifth book of the Pentateuch, the five scrolls, and it's the third most referenced Old Testament book by New Testament authors, after only the Psalms and Isaiah. 
The text of Deuteronomy follows the pattern of an ancient Near East Caesarean vassal treaty. A word on this real quick, because most of you have probably not heard this term before, and if you have, it may not have been in the best circles. Liberal theologians will try to discredit inspired scripture by pointing to this and saying, well, Moses just took the law of the Hittites, changed it a little bit, gave it to the Jews and said, this is what your God wants you to do. This is never, they've never been able to prove this. They've never been able to find source documents that match anything like this. The fact that it matches, that it matches a format roughly of existing literature is not because Moses borrowed from it. If it was borrowed from, it was borrowed from by God. If we look at the Old Testament, if we look at the Genesis narrative, when God relays the Genesis narrative to Moses, he's not giving him a line-by-line science lesson. The earth does not have pillars. The earth does not have corners. God is relating to Moses the creation around them so they can understand. Now, there are, in fact, passages that must be taken absolutely literally the earth was literally created in six days. It had to be, or Moses saying, for God labored for six days and rested on the seventh, so shall you, makes no sense. Are we going to work for a thousand years and then take a thousand years? That doesn't make sense. But some of the passages are figurative, and they're figurative in a sense so the people can understand them. So it is with the layout of Deuteronomy. Yes, in a sense, it matches the layout of, of treaties and covenants of that day. But if someone borrowed from it, it was God that borrowed from the Hittites. And as the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. If God wants to take the, 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 the style of the day and use it for his work, that's him. He gets to do that. That does not defeat the inerrancy of the Bible, it does not defeat the inspiration of the Bible, and it does not stand in contrast to the nature of our God, who we know communicates and seeks for us to understand. So let's look at this layout. The treaty follows a very simple pattern. It has a preamble, a historic prologue, general stipulations, specific stipulations, blessings and curses, and then witnesses. This covenant is wrapped and woven amongst three sermons given by Moses and a farewell address, as well as his burial, which is mentioned at the end of chapter 34. The general and specific stipulations are the things the people must do. This is what the Caesarean, the king, is commanding the vassals, the subordinates, to do. You will do this. The blessings and curses are the results of their obedience or disobedience to those things. If you do this, you have these blessings. If you don't do this, you will have these curses. And then the witnesses are those testifying to have received this covenant. So it is in the book of Deuteronomy that we have all these things, and I've marked the appropriate passages for, uh, for further study. Our specific text is going to be covering verses 4 through 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way 
and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Verse 4 is called the Shema, which is from the literal Hebrew word for hear, which I directly stole for the title of this sermon because I'm completely unoriginal. It is the great monotheistic confession of the Hebrew people and is still recited morning and evening by many Jewish people. Put in its native tongue, it sounds like this. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Eshard. Hero Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. No other nation or tribe had such a confession. Uniformly surrounding the surrounding nations had a vast cadre of gods, one for almost every considerable part of nature and of life. Some are believed to have had smaller cadres, seven or eight, um, and some speculate that groups may have had as few as two or three, though no direct evidence of this has ever been found. But no people in all the known world in 1400 BC had a single god and could make such a claim that our god is one and that it was the one god. This is the great difference between the Hebrew people and everyone else. They worshipped the one God, the one true God. If you notice and want to nerd out on languages, the two words I have circled up there are the Hebrew spelling of Yahweh. But it was never pronounced by the Jewish people. There was such a reverence for the name of God. So they substituted the word Adonai, which means Lord. Our Bible does this today. My uh, New American Standard says Lord, in place of this, this four-letter combination. Uh, in fact, the people had such a reverence, their number system, if you think of our numbers, our teens, numbers 13 through 19, are 10 plus the base number, right? 15 is 10 plus 5, 16 is 10 plus 6. The Hebrews are very similar. They use letters to depict their numbers. To avoid using the letters from this combination, to avoid the possibility of accidentally uttering the covenant name of God, they changed their numbering system for numbers 14 and 15, I think. So instead of 10 plus 4 and 10 plus 5, in Hebrew the numbers are written 9 plus 5 and 9 plus 6, so that you do not misuse the name of God, even in such a thing as counting. Verse 5 goes on, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So now the Hebrew people have had the oneness of God addressed and the holiness of God has been declared. But now the people are told what they must do in relation to this holy God. God must be most important. He must be the number one thing. You have to love Him with everything you have. Folks who read the New Testament will recognize this passage. Uh, our dear brother read it for us from, the, uh, from this very spot earlier today in Matthew 22. It also appears in Mark 12 and Luke 10. All three of the synoptic gospels record Jesus reciting this very verse and saying, this is the greatest commandment. And it is directly related to the second, which Jesus follows with. Love your neighbor as yourself. In the Matthew account, these passages are followed with the words, in verse 40, 
On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. What does this mean? Well, law and prophets was the Jewish way of referring to the Old Testament, the whole of their Bible. They didn't have a New Testament, so they wouldn't call it the Old Testament. So they called it the law and the prophets. And on this, on these two commands, rests the entire law and prophets. And Jesus is very adamant that this is still the greatest commandment. It's important to note that Jesus at this time is doing a lousy job of unhitching himself from the Old Testament. One might even believe that he wasn't trying to at all, but that he was directly tying the Old Testament covenants to his New Testament covenant. All of the law and prophets. This seems clearly referenced back to the Ten Commandments, which were also read earlier today. Commandments 1 through 4, or Table 1, is loving God. Notice the longer section of this chapter I read that Moses begins to paraphrase the Ten Commandments after giving this, this directive to them. Because it was in the keeping of these commandments that people were to love God. If you want to love God, this is how you do it. Have no gods before him. Do not make graven images to worship. Do not take his name in vain oaths or statements. And honor his Sabbath day and keep it holy. And commandments 5 through 10 on loving our neighbor. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, these are the ways in which we love our neighbor as ourselves: Honoring our parents, not stealing, not murdering, not committing adultery, not bearing false witness, and not coveting the things which are not ours. Now, as we well know, in the Beatitudes and other places, Jesus clarified these, the second table and added to the people's understanding because their hearts were hard and they needed it clarified. That it wasn't just a matter of what you physically did. It doesn't matter if I physically steal. It doesn't matter if I murder. If I hate my brother, it is the same as having murdered. If I lust, it's the same as having committed adultery. This was to be the standard by which the Jewish people lived. When they entered the land and occupied it, a pagan land full of pagan people who worship false gods and have abominable practices, not the least of which was the sacrifice of their own children. When the Jews entered the promised land and occupied it, these laws, these commandments were to be forefront in their lives. People were to see the way the Jews lived and understood that there was a God amongst the Jews and that that God was most high. Yet also it's interesting 1,400 years later, with the promised land lost to the Jews, having been sacked and occupied by invader after invader, with the Jewish nation first split in half and then decimated altogether, with only a brief return to a Jewish state under the Maccabees, after all this had been lost, when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he doesn't give them a new commandment. He says, the greatest commandment for God's people is that they will love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. Do we think it's changed today? Is there a different greatest commandment today? We're 2,000 years removed. Has anything changed? Has God's law changed for us? I submit to you, no. But I also submit to you that if you asked a non-believer what the greatest commandment in Scripture is, they would say, judge not. It is the most quoted 
misused and contorted piece of scripture in our Bible today by people who do not care what God says, but want to use his words for their own purposes. Some will also say that Jesus has fulfilled all that stuff. That the law is done because Jesus fulfilled it. So it's gone. Well, if it's gone, then he abolished it. That's what it means when something's gone. It's abolished. Uh, But he didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. Jeff spoke this morning about antinomianism, which is those who speak against the law. And it's important to know, church, that no one is going to ever raise their hand and say, yes, I'm an antinomian. No one will ever say that. They will say exactly what Jeff said. I was saved when I was 12. Once saved, always saved. It's important to understand that the doctrine of once saved, always saved is an almost correct perversion of the basic Reformed tenet of perseverance of the saints. But even in the words, you hear the difference. Once saved, always saved, perseverance of the saints. Those who are saved will always be saved, but those who are saved will persevere. And there is a mile-wide difference between these two. So what does it mean to say that Jesus has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? Well, let's back up to the format of this, this text and of this treaty. So in Jesus' active obedience, he fulfills the general stipulations and the specific stipulations. His life on earth, the 30 plus years he spent as a human being in his flesh, living every day in obedience of God, he fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. But he did something more than that. In his death, he fulfilled the curses of of the law in their totality so that the people of God today would not have to keep the law in fear of curses, in fear of death if they sidestepped the line or if they stepped across the wrong thing. No, the people of God can live in pursuit of holiness and righteousness according to God's law and in pursuit of the blessings the covenant promises. So if it is fulfilled, the law is not done away with. We can't unhitch ourselves as some may wish to do. We as people of God are freed from the curse, but we're not free from the law. The law is how the moral law of God is how we live a holy and just life. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 8, he gives a call to this holiness. He says, These words which I am commanding you shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. The command is one of totality. To be written on their hearts was to show not only outward but inward devotion to God. The text is later paraphrased in chapter 11 of Deuteronomy saying, very similar, the same statement. Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 31. Many of you will recognize this as Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant. He says in verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Remember, the nation of Israel had been divided and they were on the brink of complete disaster. You no longer had a united people, but two separate kingdoms. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. The whole tenet of a new covenant is that it is something new. In the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. In the time between the giving of the law in Deuteronomy. In the time between the giving of the law in Exodus. Remember, when Moses goes up to receive the law, what's the first thing the people do? They make a golden calf. Did they adopt a new God? I don't believe so. If you look at the text surrounding the golden calf, they na- that calf had a name, and that name was Yahweh. They tried to associate that calf, pulling forward what they had learned in Egypt of the, the worship of bulls and the worship of other things. And they said, this, this gives us a God we can see. This is a God we can follow. They didn't invent a new God. They tried to make their God fit what they understood. And in doing so, brought destruction upon themselves. But in the days between the giving of the law and Jeremiah's prophetic utterances, the people of God had proven disobedient time and time again. They had broken his covenant. They had strayed from their way. And they had received upon themselves the curses of the covenant, death, a sick land, and the loss of the kingdom that had been promised to them. And even separation from God that soon after this would result in 400 years of silence from God to his people. That is until the calling of John the Baptist. Jeremiah continues in verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. In this passage, through inspiration, Jeremiah lays out the terms of the new covenant. Instead of the people being called to write the law in their hearts, it is God, which we clearly can't do ourselves. We can't even begin to try. God himself shall put his law inside us and write it on our hearts by way of the Holy Spirit. Not merely to some of the covenant people who were the remnant among Israel in the Old Testament. Rather, this will be the distinct mark of the covenant people. God's word written on their hearts by way of the Holy Spirit. Thus, a circumcised heart replaces outward circumcision as the mark of the covenant, which we display in believers' baptism. In Deuteronomy, Moses continues saying, You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. This passage is taken very literally by, Orthodox, by the Orthodox Jewish community. As I said, they recite it morning and night because this says, when you rise up and when you lie down. 
They take that very literally. As New Covenant believers, we should seek to fulfill the spirit of this commandment. Remember in Jeremiah where he says, they will not teach each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord. This is not to say that we are not to teach our children, because Paul commands Christian fathers in Ephesians 6, verses 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So then we are called to raise our children according to the word of God, just as we pray that they may be redeemed as we as believers have been. So then the question is how? If we're commanded to bring them up in the admonition of the Lord, how do we do it? We certainly can't rely on the public school system to do it for us. If there's one thing that's evident, it is that very fact. A simple way to train your children according to Scripture is to catechize them. Today we have many good Christian catechisms. As a family that subscribes to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, as Jess and I do, we use, uh, we're starting our kids through the Young Baptist Catechism by Adam Merle. Jeff, who is more of a Westminster guy, may prefer to use the Great Westminster Shorter Catechism as it aligns with his confession. If he's really feeling bold, he might use the Westminster Longer Catechism, which is immensely more difficult. But there are many others that can be used. Spurgeon wrote a catechism. Uh, Keech wrote a catechism. There are many out there that you can use. But they are an excellent tool to teach Scripture to young minds through basic memorization and resuscitation and reciting. Another way is family worship. It's a great way to train your children in the basics of solid biblical teaching. Simply reading or singing the Psalms, a short passage of Scripture, and a time of prayer reinforces the basic elements of Christian worship throughout the week and can help the younger children to adjust to sitting in worship services amongst the adults. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not to be overlooked is, based, is just having the discussions about everyday life. Speaking biblical wisdom into your children's lives is an excellent way to live out your Christian faith. Just remember that as you teach them the Christian way to live, they will expect to see it from you. And in those times when you fail, it's a good time to reinforce the value of repentance and the need for forgiveness that we have as flawed followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 6.8 says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Another passage taken very literally by Orthodox Jews, uh, even before the time of Christ, and continued through to this very day. Notice this member of the Israeli Defense Force with the box strapped to his forehead and to his arm. This is them literally carrying out this passage, that they shall be bound to your head and bound to your hands. Uh, these boxes are called tefillin, and they are filled with little, little small written pieces of the scripture and of the commandments that the Orthodox community uses to daily remind themselves to carry out this commandment. And when they engage in their prayer rituals, they use them as well. It's important to note that the Orthodox Jews aren't the only ones who take this language very literally. There's eschatological significance to this passage. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 16, it says, And he, that is the beast, 
will cause all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free man and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. Christians who align themselves as dispensationalists believe this to be a literal mark on the forehead and on the hand, just as the Orthodox Jews take the Deuteronomy text to be literal. While most others hold to a symbolic interpretation of this passage, that followers of the beast will be known through their thoughts and through their actions. So understanding the meaning. Just as the law is not literally written on our hearts, so we also don't need to tattoo or bind copies of it to our heads or to our hands. Rather, the law of God, to love him with our whole being and to love our neighbor as ourself, should be lived out every day in our thoughts, that is through our head, and our actions through our hands, in accordance with the moral law handed down to the people of God by Moses, and with the insight of the prophets, epistle writers, and the very teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, so that we are not only the people who hear the command of God, but also those who do. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for giving us the opportunity to come before you, to study your word. And thank you for using ordinary people like myself and Jeff to teach your word to God's people. And we know that it's not the messenger, but the message that has the power. You could use rocks if you felt it necessary, but you've chosen to empower us. Thank you for this. And thank you for the, the, the continued health and hopeful restoration of our brother as he endures his cancer treatments. And be with all those who could not be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.